This event was recorded live at the 2016 Edinburgh International Book Festival. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to this, the second day of the Edinburgh International Book Festival 2016. My name's Nick Barley. I'm director of the festival, and it's my great privilege to introduce today's speaker. Now, when Ali Smith was asked to define in her event at the book festival yesterday what fiction is, she chose to quote a child that she'd been speaking to. Fiction said the child, with great succinctness, is made up truth. I loved that. And paradoxically, in this age of rationalism, the fact that novelists can make things up is probably what's kept literature relevant. So with that in mind, what is the role of philosophy in the 21st century? Does the power of philosophy sit neatly alongside the power of fiction in its ability to think irrationally? Well, one thing's for sure, the world needs brave thinkers right now. And today's distinguished guest, A.C. Grayling, is a philosopher who is totally unafraid to throw himself into mainstream public discussion. He believes that philosophy can play a useful role in society, whether in the area of human rights or drugs policy. Indeed, Anthony is one of philosophy's most publicly visible and brave figures, and he hasn't always made life easy for himself. In setting up the new College of Humanities in London, for example, where he's now Master of the College and Professor of Philosophy, he courted controversy, as well as gaining widespread recognition in the academic community. As the author of a series of hugely popular books, Anthony appears regularly here in this book festival's Bailey Gifford Main Theatre, where he's a passionate advocate of an open-minded, plain-speaking philosophy. Indeed, he's appearing again here next Saturday to discuss his new book, The Age of Genius about the birth of the modern mind in the 17th century. But he's also a passionate reader of fiction. And since he chaired the judges of the Man Booker Prize a few years ago, 2014, Anthony's profile in the literary community has become even higher. And that's why I thought A.C. Grayling would be the perfect choice to deliver this year's Penn H.G. Wells lecture. This is the second time that we've presented the lecture in partnership with English Penn, working with its brilliant deputy director, Catherine Taylor, to celebrate one of the most interesting and provocative thinkers of 20th century literature. Last year's lecture by Ali Smith was so powerful that Penguin published it. Here, as an introduction to this reprint of Wells's influential book, The Rights of Man. It's not a challenge, Anthony, but whether or not this year's lecture ends up as a printed publication, I can't predict. But I have got great confidence that this year, it will be just as profound, entertaining, and influential. So please join me in welcoming to deliver this year's Penn H.G. Wells annual lecture, Professor Anthony Grayling. Thank you. Thank you so much. Well, a really great delight to be back in lovely Edinburgh and to be talking about... Uh, um, a hero of mine, H.G. Wells, uh, a man so prolific in his work and his thought and so exemplary in many ways of um, what we would really want, uh, each one of us would want for ourselves and certainly want for our friends and uh, contemporaries in society. Imagination, thought, but imagination and thought informed by a really powerful desire to know and to understand. Because one of the remarkable things about H.G. Wells is that he was an autodidact. You know that he was born in relatively uh, modest circumstances, didn't have an opportunity to go to a, a great school or to go to university, but quite early on indeed as a teenager was apprenticed to a, a draper and worked in a shop. A little while later, he became an assistant schoolmaster in those palmy days. Rather sensibly, perhaps, people learned how to be teachers by teaching. And uh, we all know, because uh, uh, you were practicing your Latin in the bath last night, so you'll remember that little Latin tag, docendo disco, which means I learn by teaching. And that was one of the ways that uh, Wells himself learned. But above all, he was a great reader. Very, very much a, a self-taught individual. In fact, rather like uh, others notable uh, in the late 19th century and the early 20th century, people who taught themselves, people who valued the enterprise of achieving that thing which is the one great step beyond the mere acquisition of knowledge, and that is the acquisition of understanding. 
and he put it to wonderfully good work. Firstly, he must have been a, a, a marvellous teacher. I think as a very, very young man, full of enthusiasm, and teaching himself the night before, he was going to teach his class the same thing the next day. But in a way that shows itself, which, because it shines through his literary work, his novels, but also his later non-fiction work as well, how very thoroughly he grasped the ideas that uh, he was interested in. It's not possible, it just simply isn't possible to write with the lucidity and the illuminating character of uh, Wells's prose without really having thought things through and understood what it was that he was writing about. I was just rereading, in fact, uh, The Time Machine um, recently and had to keep stopping from time to time just to remark to myself on the wonderful choice of words, the precision of his use of language, the fact that he was, was able to express in such short compass. It's a very short novel, that one, and yet it presents us with a fully realised world, the world of the future that uh, he visits, where uh, you may remember he meets the rather effete descendants of ours. All our struggles to make the world a better place has made it such a good place that um, they have rather a, a pointless kind of life. All their problems are solved and all their needs met. Uh, but the underground people, the Morlocks, you may remember, living in the dark uh, with their um, light-sensitive eyes, uh, troubled by the matches that he flares when he visits them. All this, this world is created with such fullness and richness and yet in such a very brief compass. And this is something that comes out of the fact that he saw very, very clearly what it was he wanted to tell us about. So there are three elements, in a way, when you look back across the uh, landscape of H.G. Wells' life. The fact that he was a great autodidact, the fact that he read, the fact that he learned by teaching, the fact that he set himself the task, and it was a, a daunting enough one for somebody who married young and who lived in relative poverty, of getting an education, of going uh, to study science. He studied biology, in the end indeed uh, got a, a degree in zoology as an external student of London University, but this was after a long uh, struggle really to get to, to that point. But also it's evident from the way he writes that he was a, a really great reader. And this is uh, something that all aspiring writers should grapple to their souls with hoops of steel, and that is that to write needs, needs you to read, and he certainly did. That was one thing. His great contributions to fiction, and especially to science fiction, and he's regarded as one of the leading lights in the whole genre of science fiction for very, very good reason, was uh, uh, something that he did rather early in life, in the 1890s and the first decades of the 20th century became famous, he became extremely wealthy as a result of his uh, history of the world, um, and he was able, therefore, on the basis of a platform that he had built for himself, to turn his attention to putting the world to rights. So in the last decades of his life, and he died in 1946, he wrote a, a great deal of non-fiction. He wrote about politics, he wrote about society and the future of society, he wrote about human rights, he wrote about war. And in all these contributions... He brought to bear very, very good, sound, solid sense. Now, one mustn't over-egg the cake a little bit here. One has to point out that there are some things about Wells that one might find a little troubling. One is that uh, there is a, a charge that he plagiarised his great history of the world. You may remember there was a court case because a, a Canadian lady had... Um, written uh, a world history, uh, which was sent to um, Wells's publishers in London, and uh, Wells probably seen the book. Uh, when the manuscript was returned to her in Canada, it was very well thumbed, and corners of pages had been turned down, and then it turned out that there were marked similarities between what she had written and what Wells had written, and so she took him to court and lost. And the uh, argument that has been since put, because of course this is one of those things that academic lawyers like to get their teeth into to discuss whether or not she actually had a case, some say she did and some she didn't. 
this just reminds one what the luck of the draw is with whoever your barrister or your advocate or your judge is when you go to court. But uh, th there is a question mark there. There is another question mark over the fact that um, as a biologist in the late 19th, early 20th century, he fell under the influence of uh, uh, people, not uh, um, fully under the influence of people like Galton, but at any rate, under the idea that uh, eugenics, the encouragement of uh, the production of uh, healthier, fitter, more intelligent, taller, uh, let us not hope, blonder people might be a good thing and that uh, what we ought to do is to discourage people who would uh, produce um, lesser human beings. So the unpleasant and uh, troubling feature of eugenics and eugenic thinking, which of course reached a kind of nadir um, among the Nazis in the 1930s and 40s, who sterilised people they thought unfit to breed. This idea was uh, uh, one that came to seem to the rest of us after the Second World War to be a very unattractive one. But there was uh, Wells as a, as a young man reading Plato on his own, teaching himself um, to appreciate the great philosophers, and he read Plato's Republic. And of course, Plato's Republic is the most appalling piece of fascist literature that you would ever want to come across. <laughs> After you, one, one must separate, and I'm always reminded of something rather wonderful that William Hazlitt said about Edmund Burke. Edmund Burke, the great Tory, and uh, William Hazlitt was a radical, and uh, he disapproved tremendously of Burke's politics, and especially Burke's hostility to the French Revolution, of which Hazlitt was a great admirer and enthusiast. And uh, Hazlitt said, Burke writes wonderfully. The crested magnificence of his prose is something to wonder at, so that even if you disagreed with his political views, you should at least admire him as an author. And anybody who didn't admire him as an author on the grounds that he disagreed with his political views shows a vulgar and democratical mind. Well, I think there's, some, there's a good point being made there, which is that one should appreciate the good points about things and uh, not be afraid to disagree with the bad points. And in the case of Plato, who was a great genius, there's no question about it, Alfred North Whitehead said, all philosophy since Plato's time is footnotes to his thought. And although that's not quite accurate, it's not wholly inaccurate. So he was a very, very great genius, but he did have appalling views on the nature of society. You may remember that the only good thing he ever said on this question was that um, countries ought to be run by philosophers. Well, I, I agree with that. <laughs> but he, he also said uh, what we should do to ensure the, um, the, the upward progress of the uh, national stock is to pick all the most intelligent and handsome youths and all the most intelligent and beautiful maidens and mate them. And then the babies, they won't let anybody else mate because they might produce uh, not such nice children. And then the babies thus produced will be taken into national nurseries where they will be bred up uh, in Plato's philosophy. And those who are uh, any good at it will, of course, become philosopher kings. Those who are athletic and, and fit will become soldiers, and the rest can go and work in the fields. Well, this kind of view, this is, in, in fact, a, you know, a blueprint, in a way, for a, a sort of eugenics. This view was one that recommended itself to some people uh, in the late 19th century especially, uh, especially after the influence of Darwinian ideas had uh, begun to take hold. Because one thing that Darwin alerted everybody to was that given the sorts of, of um, mechanisms that were involved in evolution, and given the fact that intervention in those mechanisms was actually a commonplace on the farm, the breeding of dogs and horses, it showed that you could actually improve a bloodline, you could improve a stock by selective breeding. And so to the rational mind, at any rate, that seemed a rather good idea. You looked at your political opponents and you thought their parents shouldn't have been allowed to get together at all. <laughs> and uh, you looked at the people you liked and admired, your own family, and indeed yourself in the shaving mirror in the morning, and you thought, yes, eugenics is a very good idea. So one mustn't, in a way, overblame uh, Wells for uh, ha having um, thought along those lines a little bit. It was very much in the air, even though now we would very much want to disagree. I feel quite confident that if it were possible to resurrect Wells and say to him, oh, Herbert, how could you possibly have, have agreed with that kind of view? And here are our reasons for thinking that it's not a sustainable one, that as a, a rational and thoughtful individual, and he very much 
was one, uh, he would agree with us. I don't know whether you know this, but um, Wells was put forward for the Nobel Prize in Literature four times. Four times he was nominated for the Nobel Prize. He didn't get it. Um, but the mere fact that he was uh, nominated says something uh, about him and his reputation in his own day, which we, to some extent, have, have lost sight of. Now, it always happens with people who are major figures in their time that um, the opinion of succeeding, immediately succeeding generations works a bit like this. The person dies, there's a great outburst of admiration, the obsequies, the, uh, the uh, articles in newspapers praising them to the skies, de mortuis nil nisi bonum, so people don't say anything bad about the recently deceased, and then a kind of silence falls and indeed a shadow across the reputation. In the case of H.G. Wells, what happened in the decade or so after his death was that the fact that he had what might be regarded as a mildly irregular, amorous life uh, <laughs> came into notice. And the 1950s was a slightly moralistic and anxious time, a little bit similar to the moralistic and anxious time we're in at the moment. Let me pause there and open a footnote and just remind you of, a, of a, uh, an interesting sociological fact, which is that moral attitudes are a bit, like a, a bit like a pendulum. They swing backwards and forwards. You have more liberal and less liberal periods of time, uh, more open, more closed. If you look back across the last 400 years or so, you notice, you remember at any rate in the first half of the 17th century that the Puritans managed to close the theatres of London Think of that. First half of the 17th century, the age of Shakespeare and Johnson and the rest, and they managed to close the theatres. But by the Restoration, of course, the second half of the 17th century, you had uh, um, the Earl of Rochester. Never read any of his poems. They're extremely rude. The 18th century was very sensible. The 19th century, not so sensible. It's alleged to be the case that some people covered up the legs of their grand pianos on the, on the grounds that legs were not to be seen. After the First World War, there was a certain outburst of ebullience in the Roaring Twenties. After the Second World War, there was a moment of cold. One of the victims of it was Alan Turing, because there was a crackdown on gays, and he committed suicide because of the persecution. The 1960s got sensible again. I was there, I remember it, and <laughs> as you see, I, I still have the hairstyle, so it is, I, do, I do look back on it with some, some fondness. But here we are in our own day now, faced again with the pendulum swinging back into the, into the rather cooler, moralistic shades. I've always thought that the definition of a moralist is somebody who says, I don't like it, so you mustn't do it. Or it's rather interestingly, uh, Wells himself defined a moralist as somebody who um, is jealous with a halo. So, <laughs> and, and very perceptive. Well, so his own uh, reputation went into a, a partial occlusion at any rate uh, because of the fact that he had had this somewhat irregular life. He had had a, a very... Um, uh, what, what is the expression? Understanding wife. He'd had a number of mistresses uh, in uh, certain periods of his life. His wife and mistress both lived under the same roof, as you may know. Um, perhaps most celebratedly, he uh, had a child with uh, Rebecca West. So he was known to, to be what he himself called an amorist. He said, I wasn't all that successful as an amorist, but there were a number of people I loved, which I think is a nice thing to say. But it did cast a shadow over his reputation. And as a result, he, he went off the radar a little bit. We have a problem in our educational system, which is that we focus on curricula. We have a curriculum in history and in literature. There's a, sort, there's a set of things you've got to study, um, as it might be the Norman Conquest and the Tudors. That's history. Uh, although recently I understand that... Um, the 1930s and 40s and the Second World War have been a, a big subject for, for history. And then, of course, there's the literary canon. And on into university, if you look at any university subject of study, take my own subject, philosophy, for example, there are the great Himalayan peaks of achievement in Plato and Aristotle and René Descartes and uh, uh, David Hume, John Stuart Mill, Bertrand Russell. But in the valleys... There are many, many people who made wonderful contributions, whose thoughts and ideas are of the very first interest if one gets involved in them. 
And the same thing is true, of course, of literature. And so the literary curriculum in schools, where you read a little bit of something, I think I've heard to, to my horror and because I find it so unpalatable that I, I, I can't really believe it to be true, that it's no longer the case that um, at GCSE or that, le that level in uh, English schools at any rate, it's no longer the case that whole plays of Shakespeare are read, but excerpts. The excerpt is the enemy of all human possibility and one must, uh, well, one must deprecate it. Well, in, in that kind of situation where um, the, the small screen and the, and the now rapidly evolving thumbs have taken over a little bit from more extensive reading, we hope that that is a trend that uh, uh, is only a little fluctuation, it's going to be very, very unlikely indeed to find H.G. Wells on the curriculum. And because he isn't on the curriculum, he's only read by people who know about his existence by readers, by people like your good selves, by people like us. It's always so nice to be able to say that. <laughs> people who know about books and care about them, care about literature and, and who therefore know Wells, and who therefore appreciate the fact that as a writer, as a writer, he was somebody who, in his fiction and non-fiction both, really did merit consideration by the Nobel uh, Committee. Really did. I think he is, he is a, a, a wonderful, wonderful writer. But it is as a thinker that uh, I, I find myself uh, drawn to him even more. And this is because he had a lively appreciation of something that was of, of something which is of very great importance to us, and indeed maybe of even greater importance to us today in the second decade of the 21st century, even than it was at the turn of the 20th century. And that is the very great importance that people should know something about science. Now, this doesn't mean that people should be scientists. It doesn't mean that you have to really get into quantum theory. I know you all were, and you were very au fait with it. But to be literate scientifically is not to be a scientist. Science literacy means an intelligent layperson's understanding of what is happening in the major areas of scientific inquiry. Today, for example, we think about cosmology, we think about particle physics and the great work which is being done at the Large Hadron Collider in CERN. We think about what's happening in uh, the neurosciences and what the neurosciences are telling us about uh, ourselves, about the brain, and because of our increasing knowledge of the brain, about the mind. But above all, in the biological sciences, because in the biological sciences and the great advances already happening and vastly promised in medicine and in medical research, um, genuine transformations in the condition of, of humanity uh, impend. And so to know something about these things, to understand uh, evolutionary theory, to know about biology, to know about the applications to medicine, this is something that an intelligent, uh, responsibly intelligent person should be able to do. It should be possible to read reports in newspapers. And I mean, again, an another little footnote remark, the um, acreage of newsprint given over to football in comparison to the inches that are given over to work in going on in contemporary science uh, is, is rather an anxiety-provoking comparison. But to, 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 to be able to read a report in a newspaper about what's happening in the uh, biomedical sciences or in recent discoveries in cosmology or what's happening at CERN and to do it with appreciation and interest and to really want to know what the next chapter of that story is, that is something really wonderfully worthwhile. Equally worthwhile, however, is what one picks up in the way of an attitude by being interested in these developments in the natural sciences. And that is the scientific way of thinking about things. And to give you an illustration of it, I have a good friend, a man called Tijinda Verdi, now, quite rightly, Sir Tijinda Verdi, because he was one of the senior scientists on the compact muon solenoid experiment at CERN. Now, you will remember that uh, while the Higgs boson was being hunted, 
with the hunting of the snark. I mean, the the uh, Higgs boson had been being hunted by two different experiments at CERN, the compact muon solenoid experiment, or CMS, and the ATLAS experiment. And they were looking for the uh, uh, phenomenon at a certain energy level that resulted from the smashing together of, uh, of protons in the Large Hadron Collider uh, in completely different ways. So that if they both saw the same phenomenon in these completely different ways, that would give assurance that there was something there. And this work went on for, for years. It was 20 years since the design of the experiment and the building of the equipment uh, to the eventual publication of results. And indeed, it had been um, several years before the results were published that the particle had been seen. But of course, scientists are very cautious and very careful about publishing the results. They tested and tested. They made sure that they got the observations right, and then they announced it. And I said to Tejinda, my word, I said, it must have been a wonderful day, a wonderful day, when all of you sitting around the committee table said, we're ready to announce that we've discovered the Higgs boson. He said, yes, it was. It was marvellous. But you know what? It would have been even better if we hadn't found it, because then we would have known there is so much more to do and a whole new tranche of, of science to, to, to discover. And I love that attitude. I think that is a marvellous attitude. Now, Wells was somebody who wanted, was really keen, that people should have that lively interest, that enthusiasm for science. I mentioned Hazlitt a little while ago. Hazlitt, in his own work, as you know, he started as a philosopher. He published several books of philosophy, which nobody read. And so he thought, well, the solution to this is to sneak my philosophy into my general essays and my journalism, which is what he did, which is why he is such a, an interestingly philosophical writer. Wells had the same idea. One way of really getting people interested, of really uh, making people aware of the, of the importance and the potential of science and how science can utterly transform the world is to tell people stories. People love stories. People love narratives. Uh, having things uh, introduced to them uh, in the storytelling way by far, by far, captures their imagination more than if they were given a, a, a lecture with a lot of mathematics in it. So one of the impulses that lay behind these extraordinarily imaginative works of his was to show um, what science is and where it might leave, lead. He said a, a remarkable thing, which any budding science fiction writer should um, certainly remember, and that is he said, when you write science fiction, when you write futuristic novels, something like The Time Machine or The War of the Worlds, what you've got to do is you must have one impossible thing, one thing that, that isn't actually physically or scientifically possible, which you change, like, for example, the ability to travel through time, and everything else must be humanly and socially plausible. And really make it a, a, a story that people can identify with and, and will make sense to them. And then this key idea uh, and the way that the key idea operates and its connection to things that we think already will be all the more interesting and all the clearer to them. Take, for example, the, the, um, the, the, the time machine story. Well, you may remember that the main body of the story, of course, is about the experience that the maker of the time machine has when he goes forward 800,000 800, uh, AD and meets this uh, a pair of communities, the Eloi and the uh, Morlocks, who have evolved in rather different ways from our contemporary human stock now. Well, the... the uh, Realize that the, 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 the theory that lay behind it, of course, is the Darwinian theory of evolution. That's one aspect of it. But the physics, which is very, very lightly and beautifully touched on in, uh, in the story, is the physics of space and time. I mean, quite extraordinarily, you read in the first, very, very first chapter, the first conversation in the book, a discussion by the maker of the time machine about the idea of time as the fourth dimension. But of course you all know that the concept of the space-time continuum, the three spatial and one temporal dimensions, uh, which is now presupposed to relativistic physics, uh, is a really important and central concept in that. 
Wells didn't invent this concept. The idea of treating time as the fourth dimension was, in fact, already very much in the air uh, when he wrote the novel in the 1890s. In fact, it's mentioned by Jean d'Alembert in the uh, uh, encyclopedia of um, Diderot and d'Alembert back in the middle of the 18th century. So it wasn't a, an original idea. But what was original to, to Wells was the idea that in just the same way as you could travel in the three dimensions of space, backwards and forwards, so you could travel backwards and forwards in the dimension of time while staying in the same space. And this is what happens to the character. He, he fast-forwards 800,000 years, finds himself in the same bit of London, but by then, of course, things have very, very dramatically altered, and they've altered in a way which is the logical outcome of all the endeavours being made in Wells's own day for the improvement of humankind. And the improvement of humankind has gone so far that it is over-improved and it has turned into a disaster. One of the morals of the, of, of the novel is, therefore, that what makes us uh, intelligent, what makes us fit, what makes us well, uh, what makes us function as individuals and as a community is when we are dealing with challenges, when we have problems, when, we are, when we've got something that resists our muscular activity, uh, then our muscles grow stronger. That's the idea that lies behind it. Now, once again, and here's another opportunity for a footnote, a critic of that kind of view might say, ah, oh, well, you know, there have been so many views in thinking, for example, about uh, war, that precisely because war is something that makes us all braver and, and smarter and, and uh, run faster and so on, um, we, we should welcome it. It has, a, it has the function of being a kind of social hygiene, it gets rid of all the unpleasant people, uh, but, but also makes the people who survive fitter and stronger. Indeed, an aspect, again, of social Darwinism, um, Darwin himself didn't subscribe to, but the idea that times of challenge and struggle, times of difficulty, make us better. So you could treat this as a criticism of that Wellesian view. But on the other hand, you could see it as something that came out of Wells's own experience as an individual. There he was, and I repeat, uh, a draper's apprentice, living in a dormitory with other apprentices, but not doing what they were doing, instead reading. Reading novels, reading science textbooks. In fact, the very first book he ever wrote was a textbook of biology. Wanting to know and wanting to contribute and, and to teach. And that is the theme that runs through everything that he did. But teaching not just facts, not just ideas, but how to apply them. Because books like The War of the Worlds, uh, in fact, he was inspired to write that by uh, the observation of a French astro astronomer in the early 1890s who claimed that he had seen some flashes of light on the surface of Mars. And this immediately sparked off Wells's interest in the possibility that there might be life on Mars and that uh, they might be watching us and uh, they might be much more advanced than we. They might therefore um, realize that uh, uh, our uh, um, existence could be of use to them turns out that when they do come down to the surface of the planet and they, they wipe the floor with us in, in battle and they start using our blood to nourish themselves and they're only got rid of by the fact that they're not, uh, they don't have immunity to some of our common bugs and microbes and that's what in the end overcomes them. But this is all as you see, it's all of it very, very carefully thought through. It takes an idea and he works out the consequences of it with a kind of purity of logic, which is very, very impressive. So this great commitment that he had to the idea that we should be an educated people, that people should be readers and thinkers, that people should make themselves alert to and knowledgeable about science and what science promises and threatens, to be able to think about consequences, to take an idea and to trace through how it might work itself out, how it might unfold, what the future might look like given how things are now and how we understand them. That was something that he was very, very committed to. And he was very, very committed to the idea that not only could you take science as it is and work out its consequences, as he did in those two novels, but also that you could apply that style of thought 
And I mentioned a bit earlier in talking about uh, the experimenters at CERN, people like Tijin de Verdi, loving the idea of, uh, of an intellectual challenge, wanting to be presented with uh, major problems, that you could apply that style of thought, that rational scientific way of thinking, to problems of society and life in general. And in that respect, as in all other respects, Wells was very, very much an Enlightenment figure. What's distinctive about the 18th century Enlightenment is precisely the idea that the way that advances had been achieved in the natural sciences, right from the middle of the 16th century with Copernicus through the great 17th century scientific revolution into the 18th century, that style of thinking, the empirical style, making observations, looking at how things are, not how we would wish them to be or what we think the ancients told us they are, looking at them and then reasoning upon them, drawing inferences from them in a disciplined way, but basing everything on an empirical ground. If you read the preliminary discourse written by Diderot to the great encyclopedia that I mentioned, he precisely says there, everything ultimately comes back to what we observe to the use of our senses and the application to their deliverances of our reason. Now this is, this is, this is the big ambition that he and his contemporaries in the 18th century had to generalize that way of thinking to all problems about life and society. And that is exactly what Wells did. Wells in the period from the First World War onwards, uh, right up until uh, his death, became more and more involved, more and more interested in questions about how we are to prevent war, how we are to make society more just and equitable. As you know, he was a, a, a committed socialist. Uh, he was a universalist. Like Russell and others of, of his time, he believed that with the development of um, misapplications of science to weaponry, more and more destructive weaponry, that there were just two choices facing human beings. One was destruction, uh, that we would wipe one another out in devastating wars, and the other was universal world government. I remember reading a, an article once uh, some years ago about um, Bertrand Russell, who was uh, another great proponent of the idea of world government, uh, addressing a, an, an election meeting in Glasgow on behalf of the Labour candidate in that constituency. And um, going on a great length with, with uh, many classical allusions and historical references about the need for world government to the complete bewilderment, apparently, of the voters of Glasgow who had come to hear what the Labour candidate was going to say about taxes and welfare reform and so on. And here they had this magnificent disquisition on world government from Bertrand Russell, which, of course, had no application to their daily lives at all. But it was a dream and an ideal among people who had, like Wells had, this, this greater vision, this view from Olympus, if you like, across the, across the whole realm of human affairs and, and the human future, thinking about the problems that pressed. And the problems in question were, at the time that he was thinking about these things, very, very serious. Imagine the world on either side of 1930, yet another war looming, uh, great dissension uh, among people, at the Geneva Disarmament Conferences, which had started in 1925 and ended with the fizzle in 1937, very sterling attempts were being made to try to limit weaponry. People were terrified of the prospect of uh, um, aerial war and, and bombardment. Wells himself, in the very earliest days of heavier-than-air flight, back in 1905, had published a book, The War in the Air, in which he had seen, with his usual prescience, what might happen if aircraft became weapons of war. Indeed, uh, he had picked up on the fact that in 1899, at the Hague Convention of that year, uh, bombing from the air had been outlawed. There weren't even any aeroplanes at the time, but there were airships. And indeed, the first bombers were airships, zeppelins that came across the British Isles in 1915 and 1916, dropped bombs and killed 1,500 people. Well, the attempts were being made even then, and Wells was at the forefront of them, to warn against the horrors of, uh, of, of aerial warfare and bombardment. And so in that, those conferences in Geneva from 1925 to 1937, people were discussing how uh, this terrible danger to humanity was to be averted. 
And the, some of the proposals made were that aeroplanes should be banned. Not, not just military aeroplanes, not just bombing from military aeroplanes, but aeroplanes. Because even a civilian aeroplane could be used to drop a bomb by somebody on somebody else. And so perhaps that should be stopped. But of course, when the cats of science have been let out of the bag, and certainly the cats of technology, there's no getting them back in again. And so nobody was going to accept that view. And the uh, inevitability, therefore, of uh, uh, destruction from the air was uh, very much on the cards. What could stop it? Only a worldwide authority capable uh, of um, uh, exercising the, 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 the power of restraint could stop it. Now, it's a utopian dream, it's an ideal, but it's an honourable one. It's very unlikely to happen any time in the next few centuries, so we really must hope that the biomedical people will get on with it so we can still be there to see it when it happens. But uh, it, it is, of course, very unlikely. But the fact that people like Wells and Russell and others wanted it shows that they were serious. They were very serious indeed in trying to think about the uh, sorts of solutions that uh, a world in difficulty needed. By the way, just another little footnote, and that is that uh, it turned out that the, the great anxiety about bombing um, w wasn't, wasn't really borne out by the experience of the worst bombardments of the Second World War, which were unleashed by the Royal Air Force Bomber Command on Germany and by the United States Army Air Force on Japan, until the dropping of the atom bombs. And it was therefore only at the very extreme of bombardment of the use of vastly destructive weapons like, like atom bombs that the great fears about bombing were realized. But those eggs were laid in 1945, and uh, we live with the chickens now. Well, um, Wells foresaw that, of course, and was um, worried about it. That is why he put forward the views that he did. That is why he was so insistent on the idea that the one of the greatest achievements of the a couple of centuries up until his own time, was the idea of the rights of man, of, of human rights, of the need to provide um, a, a universal legal framework in which these things would be protected. And he dreamt, in his um, genuinely utopian moments anyway, of a world which wouldn't have grown effete, or wouldn't have become vulnerable to itself in the way that happened to the Eloi in uh, time machine, but a, a world in which there would be much greater justice, that, in which there would be freedom from war, and in which the challenges would be the really interesting ones of people becoming educated. And this is a, a, an appropriate um, point, uh, uh, in, in a way, on which to um, really recognize one of the legacies of Wells. His, his understanding of the fact that Although many of his contemporaries, especially in the interwar years, in the 1920s and 30s, passionately believed that education would be the salvation of humankind, so much so indeed that some of the leading intellectuals of the time actually um, started schools or became school teachers, thinking that it was the education of the young that would uh, prevent another catastrophe like the First World War. Russell, Bertrand Russell, started a school, Telegraph House. Uh, Karl Popper was a school teacher in Vienna. Uh, Ludwig Wittgenstein was a very unsuccessful school teacher for a while in the 1920s. He, in fact, was chased away by irate parents because he used to hit his pupils uh, too hard. Um, you may remember famously um, Telegraph House, Russell's school, uh, had a legend attached to it, which was that a bishop called one day and knocked on the door. The door was opened by a naked child. The bishop said, good God, and the child said, there isn't one. And this was like <laughs> the result of, uh, of uh, Russell's style of education. In all three of those cases, uh, Russell, Popper, and Wittgenstein failed as, as school teachers. But once again, it was the ambition that they had that was so important. Now, Wells was a school teacher professionally. He had trained as one and had been one in, in his early life. But he recognized that it wasn't only um, school, or perhaps not even at school, that education would take hold and should take hold. That rather, education came through reading and discussion and through the disciplined imagination that science fiction, one example, fiction in general, 
but science in particular, would offer to people if only people would accept the challenge to be lifelong self-educators. And that is something that I so, so agree with him about. The great need for everybody to be a self-educator all life long. One of the concrete applications of that, one of the great advantages of this, would be that this ideal that we live with in our Western um, uh, uh, polities, the ideal of democracy, will only ever really be satisfied fully by educated electorates. You may remember that um, Winston Churchill famously said, democracy is the least bad of a lot of bad systems, but people don't often remember the second thing he said, which is that the most powerful argument against democracy is a minute's conversation with any voter. And what he meant, of course, <laughs> was that most people who go to the ballot box, if they bother to go at all, is uh, self-interest, short-termism, anxiety about what's going to be in their pocket after the next round of tax increases, how, much, how many pennies on a pint of beer and so on. Not really worried about other people, not thinking in the long term, and certainly not having the good of the whole at heart. A really thoughtful, educated, reflective, reading, discussing community of people would make a fabulous electorate because they would really think very seriously about the common wheel, about the good of everybody, about the medium and the long term, about what sacrifices they could reasonably and, and properly make and morally, sensibly make in order to be part of the overall story. Now that sounds utopian as well. But is it? I mean, I think Wells's argument and the argument of those of his contemporaries who shared these sorts of ideals, that education, education could be the thing that uh, changes our world for the better. Education provided through literature, through people reading and thinking for themselves, through people recognizing that um, this is one of the central values which contributes in palpable ways to the individual good and to the social good, that education, lifelong self-education, is uh, of the first moment. Now, I stand here at the Edinburgh Book Festival saying this to a bunch of people from Edinburgh who so know this that uh, it must sound to you as though I'm, I'm, I'm just uttering clichés. Uh, and it's a wonderful thing about you um, people at the Edinburgh Book Festival that that is so. But of course it's not the general view in the population as a whole. When people think about education at school and at university, and they, they think really that this is just preparation for a job, that uh, what you want is a sufficient degree of numeracy and literacy to be able to manage a checkout till at Tesco. And failing to recognize that a person is not just the job they have. I mean, it's marvelous if they have a great career that they really love so that they can, you know, go to it uh, every morning with relish and enthusiasm uh, and it makes them feel fulfilled. But people are not just their jobs. They're also friends and lovers and travelers and neighbors and voters and parents. And, and for all that, all the many dimensions of an individual, having some wider, richer sense of the world and of what underlies the way the world works is of the first value. That's the thing that Wells wanted to encourage and that is a message for us all and for, for our time that we would do well to remember. So you think of a man who educated himself, you think of a man who, who uh, taught us many lessons in the easiest imaginable way by telling us stories. You think about a man who, when he had a platform, when he was um, very well regarded, when he was famous, a household name in his own day, used that opportunity to contribute to the great conversation about what society should be and where it should go and what ideals we should reach out for if we were to save ourselves as a, as a species and to make our world a better place. You're thinking about somebody who really does merit our admiration, and that's H.G. Wells. Thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you so much. Questions or comments? Or as I always say, complaints. <laughs> yes.
Um, on the environment, well, I think he did, as a matter of fact, yes. Uh, the, the, these are... <laughs> Wells is, is like an onion. So if you take what one of his novels, again, just take the, the, the Time Machine novel, you will notice that one of the things that the time traveller brings back from the future with him is a couple of little flowers. And the medical man, who is one of the visitors at the dinner uh, into which the time traveller uh, erupts, uh, having returned from the future, is very interesting because he can't... You can't recognize what species these little plants belong to. But, but Wells talks about what has happened um, to the, the uh, flora of the world in this future with the Darwinian exercise of selectively uh, growing different kinds of plants, of no longer needing anyway agriculture because we live in this perfected future state. He talks about this, um, and he has in that particular novel, at any rate, a reasonably positive view of the outcome, even though there is the subtext which says much of the variety and accident and so on of nature has been lost. But you have to remember that um, he was writing at a time when um, something like a third of the, of the workforce of the United Kingdom lived on and worked on the land in agriculture, uh, knew it intimately well, uh, dealt with it, didn't like weeds and so on. So that environmental sensitivity in those days is very different from what we have it now. And it is therefore not absolutely centre on his radar, but he was conscious of the fact that the sorts of changes that might happen to human beings or to their buildings or to their social structure would also have ramifications to the natural world as well, and he comments on it. And that's the interesting thing about him. It's a fully realised world that he conceives in this beautifully brief and beautifully written account of it. Yes. I will come over there. There's somebody over there with a hand in a moment. I was told when I was a very, very young lecturer, in fact, I, I began lecturing as an undergraduate, oddly enough, for the Workers' Educational Association, thinking this would advance the revolution. But actually, uh, what happened was there were these very, very charming middle-class ladies who used to come along on winter evenings to hear about Plato and Aristotle. But I took over from an old, old lecturer who said, I asked him, I said, I said um, have you got any advice for, for a, a new lecturer? He said, yes. Every lecturer has a left hand of the room bias or a right hand of the room bias. And you must remember to look at everybody. This is wonderful advice because you notice that the implication is that you're not reading from a text. <laughs> yes. I was very impressed by, recently, um, by a man I read who died, Alvin Toffler, who I'm sure you know all about. And he said that the literate person of the 21st century is not one who can read and write, and, but one who can learn, unlearn, and relearn, which chimes very much with Wells's message. And I just wondered what thoughts you might have on how that message can be disseminated and can be appreciated by people who quite obviously don't do understand it at the moment. Mm. By the way, uh, some years ago, I, I um, spent some time in China, quite a long time ago now, um, uh, teaching at the Chinese Academy of Social Sciences in Beijing. And while there, a list came round of half a dozen quote-unquote Western philosophers uh, whom the Minister of Propaganda in the Chinese government, a man called Deng Li Chun, he was a very tall man, but he was known as Little Deng because the person in charge of the country at that time was a very short man called Deng Xiaoping, who was known as Big Deng. But anyway, <laughs> Little Deng has sent this, this message around uh, to say these philosophers, these Western philosophers must be criticised. And one of them was Alvin Toffler. Future Shock was the book that was mentioned. And one of the others was A.J. Eyre, Freddie Eyre, who had been my teacher at Oxford. And when I got back to... Um, to uh, England, I went to see Freddie and I said to him, you have been nominated as one of the six Western philosophers to be criticised in China, thinking he would be delighted. <laughs> After all, I had a banned book in the, in the um, Gulf States just recently and I was really delighted to have a banned <laughs> book. It was, it was a great thing. So I thought Freddie would be very delighted. Uh, I told this to him and he, his face fell. He said, oh no, I, I, I thought I was rather liked in China because he had been invited to go to China in 1956 with a delegation of people. Their plane had landed in Beijing after a very long, ropey journey. The door opened. There was Deng, the, uh, Mao Zedong and Zhou Enlai at the bottom of the steps. They were amazed to have such a, uh, a greeting deputation, only to see them turn on their heels and walk away because they'd gone to the wrong plane. <laughs> 
But anyway, he still thought that, that, that he was, you know, that he was quite a, a big figure in China, so he was very, very disappointed indeed. But to be bracketed with Alvin Toffler was even worse in his view, because, <laughs> because Alvin Toffler is not a futurologist and, and not a philosopher. But Future Shock was a book which had a, a tremendous impact uh, in, in its time. And the point that, that underlies what, what you quote him as making is, is not a bad one. Now, I wouldn't want people not to read and write, obviously, especially not to read. I remember once um, being in a group of people, one of whom said something very, very interesting, and somebody else in the party said to him, how do you know that? And a third member of the group said, he reads, which is a wonderful remark if you think about it. He reads, so he knows stuff, and, he's, and he thinks about things. So one wouldn't want to give up reading. But there is a good point in this, which is that uh, our, our, our ways of communicating interestingly to people things that they should be alerted to and should think about, and their ability to do it in a way which makes them good at evaluating the information and, and quite critical in their reception of it and wanting to know more, it really doesn't matter what the means is that you deliver this by. I mean, you talk to publishers, uh, for example, and they're all very delighted about the fact that those of us who do read still like to read on paper mainly, but um, the, the, the content of a book and the ideas prompted in the mind of a reader uh, are the really important things. And the medium by which it's done, whether it's on a screen or whether it's because you're listening to something reading, uh, somebody reading to you, or whether you read it in the good old-fashioned way on, on paper, that is of less importance. So the, the, the main importance is that the ability to learn, understand, grasp, remain interested, be involved, the things that the that, Toffler that thought would be important, those are the things which are indeed important. All that one need, need do is to remind ourselves that the, the root may include things like, I don't know, you know, uh, Harry Potter stories or the movies or the theatre. It doesn't really matter. The root doesn't really matter. It's the destination being travelled to that matters. And that is the broadening, opening, equipping of minds. That's the thing that is key. Um, what interactions did H.G. Wells have with other science fiction writers who were working on, on similar material at the same time? So people, people that were kind of extrapolating utopian or dystopian visions of the future, like kind of Aldous Huxley or Olaf Stapledon and people like that? Yes, I, I, um, I, I know one thing uh, about that. I really don't know the answer to the question about his direct contemporaries, but I do know that he was massively influential on the people who came after him. So people like, uh, like Aldous Huxley, for example. By the way, T.H. Huxley had been one of his teachers when he was uh, an undergraduate. And so he was very influential on Aldous Huxley, and indeed you can see Brave New World has some resonances uh, with uh, um, the time machine. Um, uh, Orwell also uh, was, was influenced by him, although um, he, he was critical of Wells as well. He thought that, because Wells was part of that, that older generation by the time that Orwell was really thinking and, and writing uh, in the 40s, um, he had come to be tainted by the fact that his ideas were festooned with the penumbra of pre-First World War uh, ideals. Um, but uh, and you think about Brave New World, um, and you think about uh, Animal Farm, and you think about 1984, you can see that they, have, that they are very, very much influenced by a particular style of uh, uh, writing about the future and future possibilities, a style which is, is set by, by Wells more than it is by people like Verne, Jules Verne, for example, whom, b b by the way, H.G. Um, Wells admired, or Edgar Allan Poe, I mean, other people in that tradition. So uh, I, I've got no hesitation in saying that he was obviously a, a big influence. Whether he knew personally any other people writing in the genre at the time and discussed with them, I, I simply don't know the answer to that question. But I would have thought as an omnivorous reader that he would have been very conscious of the fact that this was a, an importantly burgeoning uh, field for literature and one which could be used in the ways that he valued in the, the, in the way of, of uh, indirect education. Because that was certainly the effect that people like Poe and Verne were having on, on his contemporary readers too. Is that... Oh dear, okay, I'm so sorry. <laughs> Time does go, go fast. Thank you very much, everybody.
Thank you so much, AC Grayling. It's such a pleasure to spend an hour in your company. Um, those of you who are really interested to hear more, Anthony's talking on next Saturday about this book, The Age of Genius. If you can't go to that, we're going to go to the bookshop and you can carry on these questions and conversations and Anthony will be signing copies of The Age of Genius about the 17th century and the birth of the modern mind. Many thanks, AC Grayling. More podcasts and videos of Edinburgh International Book Festival events are available at www.edbookfest.co.uk on iTunes and YouTube. Just search for Edbookfest.